Well, we've just talked about what uh, surprised you at the coronation yesterday. And slightly to my disappointment, there weren't any large surprises. For example, there was no confusion over who was king. I was rather hoping uh, that uh, they would get mixed up and that would help me at the beginning of my sermon. But no, it was really obvious who was king. It was the one with the robe and the crown and the sword and the scepter and the orb and the one that everyone was bowing down to. But imagine that there was some confusion. In fact, so much confusion that the real king had been put to death. That's the scenario facing the crowd in Acts chapter 2. Please do open up your Bibles again if you shut them uh, to page 117. Oh no, that's not the right page. It's a different one. Let's get to the right page. That will help everyone. Uh, 1094. 1094. Acts chapter 2. The crowd had put the king to death. There was confusion. As the Archbishop of Canterbury said yesterday in his sermon, Peter is talking about a king whose throne was a cross, whose crown was made of thorns, whose regalia were the wounds that pierced his body. That sort of king is much harder to spot than the one with the crown and the robe and all the other bits. So put yourselves in the shoes of this crowd in Acts chapter 2 and answer this question. What would you do if someone had just told you that you had murdered the king? And what's more, this king is not any old king. He is God's chosen king. And to make matters worse, even though those who did the deed were professionals and made sure that he really was dead, he's not dead any longer. He's alive. And to cap it all off, not only is he alive, back from the dead, he's sitting at God's right hand on high, reigning over all of creation. Oh, and he's known to be pretty hot on making sure justice is done in his realm, which is everywhere and for all time. That's something of what's going on when the crowd hears Peter conclude his speech in verse 36. Have a look at that again. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. We thought about that verse last week. Peter is saying that everyone listening can be certain that Jesus is God and King. Jesus's life, death and resurrection have been authenticated by his miraculous pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his followers. It all added up to, Jesus, uh, to Peter being certain that Jesus is God and King. And so in verse 37, if you look at that, they are deeply affected. They are cut to the heart. Their moral centres are rocked by the realisation of what they have just done. 
Now, Jesus is a force to be reckoned with, but I don't think it's just panic that's at work here. These were pious Jews who knew their scriptures, and they'd listened to Peter carefully too. Back in uh, verses 17 to 21, back over the page, Peter had quoted from Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, where the prophet reports God's description of the last days. God says he will pour out his spirit on all people. And the crowd had seen that happen before their very eyes earlier that morning. But God says something else. We thought about it in our uh, first sermon in this series that uh, Chris Wright preached three weeks ago. We thought about the fact that if Pentecost has happened, that's the events of 17 to 18, that means that what happens in verses 19 and 20 will surely happen. The blood, the fire, the smoke, and the darkness. The great and glorious day of the Lord is the next day in God's, next date in God's calendar, so to speak. Something to be feared if you've just killed his king. But we saw that even in Joel's message, there is hope. It's there in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation, an escape from the judgment of verses 19 to 20, is possible. And so the crowd do the sensible thing. End of verse 37, back over the page. They ask, brothers, what shall we do? Now, there may be an element of panic. We've just crucified the king. We better find out what to do. But I think there's also expectation. It's not we're doomed, we're doomed. It's tell us the plan, Peter. And so Peter delivers his verdict in verse 38. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to spend the rest of our time together this evening thinking through three questions to help us to understand that sentence better. What, firstly, what does it mean? What does that actually mean when we say that? And then, what if I do that thing, repent and be baptised? And then, what if I don't do that thing? So question one, what does Peter actually mean when he says, repent and be baptised? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Repent and be baptised means admit that you're wrong and ask for help. It's a heartfelt cry for help. Now, it's not easy admitting that you're wrong. My wife, Emily, worked as a secondary school teacher, and she often uh, comments on the ability of some of her students to sort of um, ignore reality, particularly when it came to admitting that they were wrong. She would catch them sort of red-handed, breaking some rule or another, and they would sort of flat-out deny it. One of the senior leadership would call them in and say, we've got CCTV of you doing this or that. And they would just say, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. They sort of confronted with evidence. They were just kind of brazen it out and just try and make it go away. Whenever Emily tells one of these stories, she's then really quick to point out 
that that is actually what we would all like to do if we could, or it's what we actually do do, just perhaps in a bit of a subtler way. We are not good at admitting that we're wrong. We make excuses, we shift the blame, we deny things. I think we've seen an increase in those tactics in public life, just questioning the truth of a story, sowing doubt, undermining the gravity of what's going on, even if the facts seem pretty irrefutable and damning. But of course, public life is only really a kind of elevated version of what happens in homes and hearts up and down the country and around the world every day. I find it hard to say I'm wrong. But that is what Peter is telling the crowd to do. Verse 36, the crowd had just put God's king to death. The first step in Peter's solution is for them to admit that they got it wrong. But of course, repentance is more than sort of remorse, feeling bad for what we've done wrong. The word repent, it means to have a complete change of mind, to turn around and to go in the other direction. The implication of this sort of change of direction is that they had to live with Jesus as king. He must rule their lives now. Yesterday, the people in the Abbey acknowledged that King Charles was their rightful ruler and sovereign, and they pledged honour and obedience, some of them by actually falling on their knees uh, before him. You may have even joined in at home in some way. That is an illustration of what Peter is telling the crowd to do. There is no room for half-heartedness. Charlie, this morning in his sermon, uh, talked about the coronation being a sort of democratic moment where the people sort of acknowledge Charles, but without giving him any sort of real power. He's a figurehead in our parliamentary democracy. Unlike King Charles... King Jesus is the sort of king who has the power and the right to hold sway in our everyday lives. We've seen in Acts chapter 2 over these last weeks that he is God's true king, authenticated by his obedient life and death and his resurrection. This means he is sitting right now at the right hand of God, as verse 33 told us. He is the king who has an interest in our everyday lives, every part of them. Now, it doesn't matter what you said to your TV yesterday uh, in front of King Charles. It may have been positive, it may have been negative. You may have said nothing at all, you might not have been watching it. It does matter what we say to King Jesus. Have we knelt before him and admitted our guilt? The Bible is clear that we are all guilty of wanting to be our own king, ruling our own lives, and thereby rejecting Jesus as king, as the crowd did. It's what Peter calls sin in verse um, 39. 
That's not the right verse. But he calls it sin. Many of us are conscious of sin in our own lives in significant ways, of wanting to make up our own rules and to say what goes. That may have led to acts that we know are wrong towards God and towards precious people who God has made in his image. But for others, it may manifest itself more as a proud heart, always sort of justifying our unkindness, our selfishness. It may be more subtle, but it is no less deadly to us. There were lots of references to justice in yesterday's service, weren't there? And we like that. We like the idea of justice. But the symbol yesterday was a sword. The reality is we want there to be a reckoning for evil. King Charles upholds that in our country, symbolized by the sword. God upholds that in his own realm. That's what Peter has pointed out from Joel chapter 2. And it's why we need to repent, to turn away from our sin and back to God as king. That's the first part of the solution, to repent. But there's a second part as well. Living with Jesus as king and turning from our sin is more than just something we do in our heads. Charles was king before yesterday's events, wasn't he? But the coronation was a public recognition of that. Look at verse 38. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism is often misunderstood and there's lots that can be said about it. Here, I want us to think about baptism as a public recognition that Jesus is king and I need his rescue. We're going to break that into three to help us think about it. So first, it's a public recognition. The point is that other people see it and what's happening. Now, if I had decided to get my crown out and put it on my own head yesterday in my living room, that wouldn't have made me king, would it? No. What happened yesterday was a public event so that everyone could see. Each baptism is a public event, a public recognition that Jesus is king in that person's life. Then there's a second part of that. Baptism is a recognition that Jesus is king and I am not. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 that baptism is sort of like a death and a resurrection. And he's just talked about Jesus's death and resurrection. In the same way, when the waters of baptism uh, close over us, we are baptized into Jesus's death. And as we come up out of the water, we're raised into new life with him. It symbolizes death to our old way of life, 
and new birth into Jesus's resurrected life with him as king. We do the same thing as he did to show that we belong to him. But there is another way that the Bible talks about baptism as well. Now, it's bath time in our house at this very moment. And for those of you here last week, you'll be pleased to know that my son has got his stacking pots back. But what he hasn't got is his shampoo. I've got it, and uh, he'll be pleased. Uh, But we use it to get the grime off him. Peter himself talks about baptism not being the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Peter means it's a spiritual bath, symbolizing the washing away of sin. Saying, I need to be baptized, is saying, I need to be washed by God. I need him to rescue me. Putting all that together adds up to this picture of baptism. Baptism is a public recognition that Jesus is king and I need his rescue. And so there's a a question for us. If we've done the first bit of Peter's solution, if we've repented, have we done the second bit? In other words, have we been baptized? It's a matter of Christian obedience to be baptized. Jesus' final instructions, which are recorded uh, uh, for us before he goes uh, back into heaven, are in Matthew uh, chapter 28. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The church throughout the ages has always taught that baptism is an important step in following Jesus. If you're following Jesus and you haven't been baptised, then why not come to talk to me or one of the other ministers here? There'll be an opportunity on the 26th of November uh, to do just that. That's Baptism Sunday this uh, week, uh, this year. You don't have to be a perfect Christian to be baptised, because of course, they don't exist. Did you notice in verse 41, 3,000 people were added to their number that day, being baptised. They didn't wait years to make sure that they were ready. They didn't go through endless courses. It is definitely a serious step, but it's one that we can do early in our walks with Jesus. It may be, though, that you were baptised as a baby and so never sort of made a public statement with your own lips that you are following Jesus. Or perhaps you remember your baptism, but you, have, you know that you haven't been living according to those promises that you made. On Baptism Sunday, there'll be a chance to reaffirm your baptismal promises if that's what you'd like to do. The church has always taught that only one baptism is necessary. And so the Church of England doesn't re-baptise people. Again, do come and chat to me or one of the others on the ministry team 
if that interests you and you've got questions about that. But for those of us who have been baptised, does every baptism that you see, every sort of mention of baptism, like in today's passage, does that make us grateful for our own washing and rebirth in Jesus? It really should. And I think for me, too often it doesn't. Okay, here's the big point. Peter tells the crowd and us to repent, to turn around from our old ways of sin and to turn to Jesus and to be baptised, to show publicly our new allegiance to Jesus as king. That is the answer to what does it mean? Let's turn more briefly to the second question. What if I do do those things? Well, the answer is I receive the greatest gift. My family love a good bargain and they get a lot of pleasure, or we get a lot of pleasure, telling each other how well we've done and how good the bargain is. The better the bargain, the better the present, which amused and confused my wife Emily when we first got married. Now, it feels a little irreverent to compare our salvation in Jesus with a sort of bargainous birthday present. But I couldn't help thinking, what would my family say if they read what Peter says at the end of verse 38? You see, as well as forgiveness of our sins when we come to Jesus, that's the avoiding of God's wrath against our sin, our rebellion, there's more, isn't there, at the end of verse 38? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is pretty incredible. If you were at the coronation prom yesterday or watched it um, on TV, you will have heard that Rico calculated that the regalia that uh, Charles had yesterday was worth perhaps £1.3 billion. And yet the king was told that the Bible was worth far more than that, the most valuable thing that this world affords a monumental and completely true claim. Here I want us to see that the gift that Jesus received when he, was, uh, when he sits on his throne far exceeds a paltry 1.3 billion worth of shiny stuff. Look back at verse 33 again. As he is exalted... Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, and then he pours him out on believers. So in verse 38, it is an incredible gift, an incredible privilege for us to be given the same gift as Jesus when he sat down on his throne. I take that privilege for granted all too often. There's so much that we could say about this privilege, about what the Spirit does in the lives of believers and in the church as a whole. The whole Christian life, of course, is one lived in the Spirit. Here, I think, he is the one who declares that salvation is completed, it's done, and who brings us into God's family. Let me explain briefly. Last week, we saw that the Holy Spirit helps us to be certain about who Jesus 
is and what he did. When Jesus is anointed, it's a sign that he is who he says he is. He is the exalted son of God and God's king. And so when Jesus gives the spirit to his followers, it's a sign that we, we are who Jesus says we are. We are dearly beloved children and we're forgiven sinners. The gift of the spirit, which is given at the moment of repentance, it sort of confirms what repentance has secured and what baptism symbolizes. It confirms that we are part of God's family, the church. In faith, we pray that those uh, who God would call would come to take up that gift held out in the promise that Peter talks about in verse 39. This is one of the places that convinces me, though I know not everyone would agree with me, that it is fitting and right to baptise infants of believers. When we do that, we're holding out the promises of God. Promises that one day we pray that the child will take up for themselves as the Lord our God calls them. So that is, what if I do do these things? I receive the greatest gift on top of forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit being poured out on me to remind me I am God's precious child, forgiven, wonderfully brought into his family. But what if I don't? The last question. Perhaps we could move on. The clicker seems to have stopped working. Thank you. What if I don't? Well, I bear the worst consequences. In some ways, it's just a a pure matter of logic. If I don't have the spirit, I'm not part of God's family. If I don't repent, then I don't have Jesus as king. And if I don't have Jesus as king, then the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord will be bad news. To invert the words of verse 21, anyone who does not call on the name of the Lord will not be saved. It is a sober message of the worst consequences. There will be no forgiveness without repentance, verse 38. Without repentance, I remain part of what verse 40 says is a corrupt generation. Peter wasn't only talking to the crowd in front of him. He's talking about every generation, every person who rejects Jesus as king, who nails him to that cross. There is no excuse. The promise is held out in verse 39. Verse 40, if you look at that, it says, with many other words, Peter warned them. He pleaded with them. He knew it was a matter of life and death. He still pleads with us today. 
through these words recorded in Acts chapter 2. Please hear this message and repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, we live in a society where it's generally viewed as unacceptable to sort of interrupt someone uh, speaking up front like me, which is why we put on uh, Christianity Explored, so that you can ask your questions, you can probe, you can object to things like the things I'm saying. We spend seven weeks looking at the events that Peter has talked about in Acts chapter 2, events that Peter's friend, Mark, has, uh, has recorded in his gospel. Now, it starts a week tomorrow, Monday, the 15th of May. Come along and test out the claim that if you accept Jesus as God and King in repentance, you will gain the greatest gift. And if you don't, you will bear the worst consequences. Rico will be at the back under the connect corner at the end if you want to go and talk to him about signing up for Christianity Explored or do come and talk to me. We finish where we started. What do you do if you find out that you have murdered the king? That's what happened to the crowd in Acts 2. 3,000 of them threw themselves on God's mercy, repented, and were baptised, and were brought into God's family. The question for us is, will we join them?